I feel like the Privilege Cafe is definitely not your usual way of working. Um, there's, there's no there's no sort of structure. I mean, lots of people would even reach out to me and say, Maimuna, what's the itinerary? What's the agenda? What's the framework? What's your approach to engagement, Maimuna? And how are you doing this? And I'm like, well, I, I really don't tick any of those boxes. It's about being authentic. And, you know, there is no itinerary. There is no agenda. It's a safe, open space for people to come and learn and grow and just really share their lived experiences and people to, for people who are privileged to come and use their privilege for good, really. I think if we're looking at public spaces as an example um, in relation to public services, I think we need to take a historical journey. And I think mm -hmm. if we go back to the post-war period where a lot of African Caribbeans and Africans and other groups of people came over here to rebuild the mother country, what a lot of people don't realize there was racial segregation in this country. And in 1965, they passed the Racial Relation Act, and that was to stop the, the discrimination or the actual social segregation within British society, such as dance halls, cinemas, restaurants and hotels, bed and breakfasts, yeah, beaches, okay? And the list just goes on, even golf clubs, you know, bowling clubs, et cetera, et cetera. So even though they like to focus on the United States of America, there's this sense of putting their head in the sand that they were actually practicing an institutionalized racial segregation. So even though those spaces may have opened up from 1965 onwards, um, there's been, uh, I think there's been a slow process in seeing the integration in many of these public spaces as far as public services are concerned. So for example, you know, we had to fight, you know, there was bus strikes in many, many major cities in England and Wales in order to allow um, black people to become passengers, even though they were relegated to become con bus conductors and bus drivers. So there's elements of hypocrisy where, where, where that was concerned. Are the right people actually leading the conversation? Did the right people have the power? Um, because lots of people are not willing to share their power, especially when it comes to public service. And you think that like, this is a public service. Are you really the public? Yeah. The fact of the matter is, if we look in the public services as far as race relations is concerned within, within Britain, then there's a couple of factors we need to take into account. And that is, is that so-called black and brown people are not in strategic positions within public services in order to make decisions. And this is a thing. So it is still a form of institutionalized colonialism cloaked in terminologies such as equality, diversity, and all these other type of thing. We live in a multicultural society and pluralism and all these other type of terminologies. But it's very much a tick box exercise when it suits them, unfortunately. And they're still in decision-making and they're, they're still in decision-making decisions. And the, and the thing is why they're able to do that and perpetuate that is because they're never brought to account okay when they're in those positions of responsibility i believe as an individual that responsibility comes accountability if you, if you screw up whatever the case may be you should be held accountable oh you, you know, can hold people to account and like i've done for example and then you get you really do get shut down and you, yeah. you you're the troublemaker you're the angry aggressive black woman um and yeah. this whole thing about it, it does really come down to representation or lack of representation especially yeah. filtering right through to the top the fact of the matter is, if many of them are going into these jobs, etc., claiming that they're there for public services because so-called bank communities are part of the public. And if priority is only given to people that look like them or reflect their type of appearance, then they're doing an injustice and a disservice to the wider community because the community is very, very wide. It has an idiosyncratic nature, which means there's particularities and specificities as far as needs are concerned. 
And we have to move, I believe, from this concept of equality to equity. Everyone has specific needs, so you cannot treat everyone the same. That is part of what design justice helps um, me do. It gives me a language, uh, a framework, and a community of people to start to unlearn and see things that I've had blind spots about for a long time because I also wasn't having these sort of critical discussions about my practice, about my positionality, about my proximity to people in power that I can use in different ways to be more inclusive and make things more accessible. Public services have been created by certain people for certain people, and we have a legacy and a DNA that we carry with us. Um, and it's like you say, overrepresented people probably populate public services and they have never been asked uh, about their power and privilege in their position. How can we engage with the black communities? How can we engage with disabled communities, queer communities, tick the box communities? Um, and I like to turn that question around and ask why they're not here now. Why are these relationships not, why do they not exist now? What's gone on there? What's happening in your culture? What's happening in you? That means you don't have these relationships. Let's start there. Who's in the conversation? Who has the power of decision-making? Who has parity of participation? We're hoping and we're trying to mainly be those non-white dominant um, people. Having these conversations on the micro level are helping people take policy decisions and make systemic change. You can, in your own context, within your own power, actually make a change of a certain level. But then the systemic change takes a lot more time. But you need to find your place there, find how much work you can do as an advocate and how much you can do yourself, how much you can embody uh, and model for other people, but also how, how much control might you have over um, influencing policies in your institution or how much public um, scholarship can you do, like what Maimuna is doing with the Privilege Cafe, like all of us are doing. Uh, to influence more people, uh, wider people outside of our own institutions. And sometimes that can come back into our institutions once we've had it out in the world. Some of the work is in having ongoing engagement with the thoughts of marginalized populations. This might be actually interacting with them on social media, but that might not be easy if you're not already part of communities. But like making a point, if you're going to read a blog post today, prioritize the blog posts of people of color and marginalized communities and women before you read all the white people that we're used to listening to all the time, because the epistemic listening to this alternative voice is not easy. The first time you read it, you won't get it. You, you have to engage with it deeply and sustainably. People, you know, their confidence is growing coming in the, coming into this space. And like I said, they genuinely probably have never been asked what it means to be white, for example. So, yeah, I mean, just that knowledge sharing and confidence building for, for people that I feel already have a lot of power and privilege that I would I guess maybe expect them to already be knowledgeable in the, these areas, but I guess not necessarily the case when it, when they come to a safe space like the Privileged Cafe. I feel like you know people are, are totally different and they're true to themselves and they're speaking their truth. And I feel like that's what the Privileged Cafe has been a catalyst for in so many different spaces and conversations.